hello friend. Welcome to Balanced Black Girl and thank you so much for listening today. I'm your host Les and this podcast is all about exploring wellness from a student's point of view because we are all students in one way or another and I found that curiosity is really, really important to have throughout our well-being journeys. It's the second week of our new life series talking about fertility, motherhood, and birthing new ideas. And with this series, Balanced Black Girl is a proud sponsor of Black Maternal Health Week, which is this week, if you're listening to this episode when it's being released, from April 11th through the 17th. Black Maternal Health Week was created by the Black Mamas Matter Alliance, which is a necessary collective that centers and promotes Black maternal health policies and solutions. Last week on the podcast, we talked about understanding fertility from a medical perspective and what it looks like to explore options such as egg freezing, IVF, and seeking to understand how conditions such as fibroids and PCOS impact fertility. This week, we're investigating fertility from a lifestyle perspective with our guest, Dr. Cleopatra. Dr. Cleopatra is a scientist and tenured USC professor who pioneered the field of fertility biohacking and creating super babies. To date, Dr. Cleopatra has scientifically studied tens of thousands of families and has helped birthing persons in 23 countries on six continents have their super babies. She's also the founder of the Fertility and Pregnancy Institute. Using the science-driven, wholehearted primester protocol developed and refined by Dr. Cleopatra over 100,000 hours in 25 years in combination with the cutting-edge process of fertility epigenetic tailoring. The Fertility and Pregnancy Institute supports birthing persons in their 20s, 30s, and 40s to reverse reproductive aging, get pregnant quickly and easily, reduce miscarriage risk, and have their super babies. So we're going to talk more about the Primester Protocol and what super babies are, who super babies are in this episode. This conversation with Dr. Cleopatra is going to be pretty different from last week's episode. And that's not to be contrarian or to say that there is one approach to navigating fertility that's better than the other or any right approach. But I really want all of us to have as much knowledge and as many options as possible, which is why it's important to learn about these different perspectives, especially for a topic as complex as fertility. I also want to let you know that this episode does mention sensitive topics, including maternal mortality, and I encourage you to practice self-care when choosing to listen. All right, so let's get into today's episode with Dr. Cleopatra. We are live. We are recording Dr. Cleopatra. This episode has been such a long time coming, and I'm so happy that you're here. I am so excited to be here. And I have to say, it is bright and early in Los Angeles, and you are gorgeous and bright and shiny already this early in the morning. Oh, thank It's because I love to wake up early. This is like my favorite time of day. So thank you. I love it. The early bird gets the worm. It's true. It is true. It's. I've actually been waking up ridiculously early since I was a teenager. I would be, you know, 13, 14, and I would wake up before my family. I just love the morning. It's so quiet. It's so peaceful. I've always been able to think more clearly. It's just the best time. (laughs) I love the morning. And I'm amazed that that was your teenage pattern as well, because that's so different from most teenagers. That's really impressive to me. Well, that explains why you are who you are and where you are at this point in your life. (laughs) Thank you. 
I'm so excited to have you. I have been just such a fan of you personally for so long and am so just honored and privileged to have gotten to know you as a person over the past year in addition to following your work. And with the current series on the podcast talking about fertility and motherhood and stepping into that role and what that looks like, I was like, I have to have Cleopatra on the podcast. This is the perfect time. <laughs> so perfect. It's I'm so excited to be here. And obviously, I'm such a big fan of you as well. And it's been so sweet to get to know each other and, and have time to walk together and dream big together. So I'm, I'm so happy to share this time with you as well. Thank you. Yes, for listeners who may not know, so Cleopatra used to live in Los Angeles. We actually used to be basically like neighbors. Yeah. And we're able to like meet up and and walk. And now she's in Portugal with her family on this amazing adventure, just trying a new setting and, and having new experiences. And that's also been so cool to see you do with your family. Yeah, it's been so incredible. So one of the things that we're doing here on this adventure is our oldest super baby, who's eight, is playing football, soccer, and he signed with Benfica uh, Football Academy. And it's just been so incredible to watch our super baby find the thing that he loves so early in his life and do the thing that he loves. There's, It's a feeling I can't describe and it shows you how laying this incredible foundation before you go into pregnancy, just not only do you have this amazing pregnancy and birth, but it's this gift that keeps on giving. And I see that playing out so beautifully in my own super babies. And I just feel so much joy and appreciation. I can't, I can't even describe the extent to which I feel it. Oh, that's beautiful. Being able to see your, your super babies out in the world and finding their own way. And I feel like kids are such amazing teachers even the kids in my life, I'm like, I learned so much from them and from their wisdom that they already have when you just let them have that and be who they are. It's so beautiful to see. You're so right. And I'm, I'm amazed that you, I mean, you're such an insightful person, so it shouldn't surprise me, but it, it is amazing to hear someone who hasn't yet stepped into the process of having their own children to be able to see that and reflect that already. And it's true. They are the most incredible teachers we have, and they are a mirror for who we are. And one of the things that I remember vividly is, so so our super babies, we have three of them. And anybody who's wondering, what's this term super babies? I'll, I'll explain what, what it means in a second, but we have three of them so far. They're eight, six, and three. And their birthdays are actually going to be in coming up in March at the at the time that we're recording. It's we're just a few weeks away from their birthdays. And they I planned for all of them to be born in the month of March. So they have their birthdays all within two weeks of each other. And I can remember vividly when our oldest was born and he started talking. They all, all of them started talking really early, saying their first word around six months. And by the time they were a year old, they, they spoke in complete sentences and 
said everything there basically. And I can remember that our oldest said sorry a lot. And I, when he first started talking and I realized that I must say sorry a lot. And I was like, no way. I do not want this to happen. I do not want my child to go around apologizing for himself. And he has nothing to apologize for. And I have nothing to apologize for either. And that mirror reflected back to me so strongly something in myself that I wasn't aware of that I didn't want to embody. I didn't want to be, I didn't want to do, and I certainly didn't want him to, to be or do. And so right then and there, I stopped and I, I stopped saying sorry. And if I need to say, pardon me, excuse me, I do. Or if I need to apologize, I apologize, but I don't say sorry. I'm sorry. I don't say that. That is such a powerful example of kids being a mirror to our own behavior. And also, especially for women, I think we definitely have a tendency to apologize or say sorry for everything, just existing, taking up space, speaking up for ourselves. And so I love that example and that you became so much more conscious of that. Amen. You're so right. And it's true. I think that as women, we we do tend to apologize and and say sorry for so many things, including existing and taking up space. And I I lost my mother at birth and my my beautiful young mother passed away giving birth to me and to my twin sister and to me. And so I one of the things that has been a, a lifelong revelation, unfolding uh, revelation is that I've, I have had this like urgency inside of me to justify my life and justify the space that I take up in the world. And the way that I did that was I took this immigrant mentality. What's the, in, in Hamilton immigrants, we get the job done or whatever it is, (laughs) you know, and my dad was like, you know, my dad used to tell me, my dad passed away in the last few years, but he used to tell me when I was growing up, I don't care if you have to kill yourself. He didn't mean literally like kill yourself, commit suicide, but he, he was like, I don't care how hard you have to work. You do whatever it takes to make your life better and to make a contribution in the world. And he told me that constantly when I was growing up. I don't care if you have to kill yourself. I don't care if you have to kill yourself. And I really took that that immigrant mentality and that message from my dad. And I, I just took it to a whole other level. Like I will be the hardest worker on the planet. And that was, I think, in many ways, my attempt to justify my life and justify that my mother lost her life so that I could have my life and at such a young age. And, uh, and it's been, it took me a long time to realize that I was even walking around with that need to justify my life and the space that I take up in the world. And it took me even longer to realize that my work ethic, while I'm proud of it in some ways, and it's amazing, and it has led to incredible contributions in the world, 
is essentially a trauma response, is a response to having to or feeling like I, I had to justify my life. And that's really powerful. And that's been another thing that I have very intentionally worked to not pass down to my super babies. And I especially feel that way about my, my middle, who's a girl. So we have boy, girl, boy. And I feel that way for all of them, but especially for her, because I see that that tendency is very gendered in many ways. And so uh, it's been really, really important to me that she know and they all know that their life is just can just be that they can just be happy. And that that can be the extent of what their life is about, just being happy. Oh my gosh. I want to thank you for sharing that and for sharing those experiences with your family, um, with what happened to your mom and that that kind of conditioning from your dad. And it sounds like such good intentions, like wanting the best for you and wanting to push you so that you don't necessarily have the same fate. But I also agree with you that those things are trauma responses. And I think in our society, those types of trauma responses are very celebrated because it's seen as productive when you're a hard worker and when you do all the things and get the accolades. It's very much celebrated because those are things that we see as good, but sometimes the the behaviors that drive that can be so destructive and and just seeing how you have overcome that and recognize that and are not repeating that with your children is really inspiring to see. Thank you so much, Les. And that's why I'm sharing it because I think that we have this idea that we should celebrate when someone is working themselves like crazy and is always busy. And, you know, as you know, I specialize in fertility and pregnancy and making super babies. And one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about lately and teaching a lot about is how precious time is. And it's one of the few non-renewable resources that we have. And it's precious beyond belief. It's more precious than we can comprehend. And the average woman in the United States of America lives to be 80 years old. It was 81 pre-COVID. And since COVID, it went down by one year to 80. And that amounts to just over 4,000 weeks. And when you think of it that way, I mean, how many weeks of our lives go by and like, we can't even remember what we did. We, we couldn't wait to get through it. We were like, when I meet this deadline, when I achieve this thing, then I'll start to live, then I'll start to have fun, then I'll start to love myself, then I'll have space for a partner, then I'll make time for having my family. And too many days and too many weeks and too many months can go by like that. And it's incredibly urgent when it comes to fertility because we only have about 320 months. Women on average only have about 320 months of their entire lifetime when they can have biological children. But also there's only one day a month when an egg is present to be fertilized. 
And most people don't know that. The egg only lives for 12 to 24 hours once it's released in ovulation. So every cycle, and I'm using month as shorthand for cycle, they're not exactly equivalent, but every cycle, there's only one 12 to 24 hour period when the egg is present. And the egg has to be present in order to be fertilized by a sperm, right? So that means only 320 days at most in an entire lifetime. That's less than 1% of the days that the average woman will live. So time is so incredibly precious and important when it comes to fertility. And we don't talk about that enough. And yet it's so much bigger than fertility because life and life is precious and it goes by really fast. And I, as I'm doing so much teaching and reflecting on that, I'm also really like, there's this reckoning that's happening inside of me that I haven't really shared, which is looking back and, and on this trauma response on this messaging that was so well-intentioned by my father and that was reinforced by society, especially being a woman of color. I'm a woman of color scientist. We're like less than 0.001% of the world's population. What it took for me to go from being the first formally educated woman in my entire lineage to becoming the first woman to be hired on woman of color to be hired on the tenure track at the school where I started in the University of Southern California. What that took is that is not for the faint of heart. Like that is no joke. That took the most incredible grit, <laughs> the grittiest grit you have ever seen. Not, not just intelligence, but being able to be knocked down a million times and still get back up. And I was rewarded for that resilience. But one thing that I can say standing where I am standing today is that not everything is worthy of our resilience because not everything is worthy of our time. And so while I have a lot of appreciation for the beautiful life that I live and the I'm absolutely obsessed with and in love with the work that I get to do in the world, the pathway that I took here, I wouldn't, I don't think that I would ever repeat if I could do it over again, because the number of days and weeks and months and years that I spent being resilient in the face of circumstances and people and things that weren't worthy of my resilience were too many and, and time is too precious. What you said about things not being worthy of our resilience and not being worthy of our time really like stop me in my tracks. I don't think I've ever thought about it that way, but I think that it's so true and it's so important for us to remember and to keep things in perspective. I've had a lot of very similar feelings where I'm like, I've worked really hard and I've created these things for what? You know, and there's there's part of it where, yes, I get to help people, and that is amazing. And then the other parts of it where I'm like, "Wow, how much have I also sacrificed my own mental health and overall well-being to do it? And is there a better kind of happy medium here 
um, where that doesn't, where it doesn't have to feel like such self-sacrifice to get to where we want to go and putting that in perspective. And so that message was, was really timely. And I just want to really thank you for sharing that experience. You're so welcome. I, I'd never thought of it either less until I went through the tenure process and I got tenure at the University of Southern California, which is the ninth ranked private institution in the world. And very few people can get to the point of getting tenure and the number of women and the number of women of color and the number of women with children. And I had three super babies within the span of five years on the tenure clock, which is also unheard of. Adding all of those those elements together made my odds so minuscule of something like this being able to happen. And yet I made it happen through sheer will. I'm sure, I'm sure that I had lots of forces in the universe also supporting me. And I don't believe today that what it took was that I, I don't believe that, that, that achievement was worthy of the resilience that it took. And I didn't know that just because I could withstand something that just because I am that resilient doesn't mean that I should be. Mm. Some things just deserve to be walked away from some circumstances, some people. And I know that now, but I didn't know that then. And that's why I'm sharing it. And I think that a lot of us feel a lot of gratitude and appreciation for the things that we've accomplished that allow us to impact the lives of other people in beneficial and powerful ways that that drove me and always and even as a little girl the thing that saved me in and from my childhood which was very dark and scary was the fact that I was much more interested in other people's pain than in my own pain. And I was much more interested in how to be a solution for other people's pain than to think much about my own or feel much about my own even. I mean, I didn't deny what I was feeling, but I I didn't spend any time dwelling on it. And that saved me for sure. And so there is the one of the greatest needs of the soul is to be able to contribute. And yet I agree with what you're saying. And I think we really need to shift the cultural conversation. And this, I was going to say in the Western world, but I think this is pretty much all over the world. Now I've studied people all over the world, over 50,000 women and families all over the world, scientifically, as well as just observing people in my my extensive travels. And I think this is something that's shared across cultures and country lines, language lines, socioeconomic lines. And I think we need to shift that conversation, especially for women, especially for high achieving women. And I would say also for women of color, there's this idea that, you know, we're women of color are so strong. Women of color can withstand everything. And if you can't, that's a a weakness in some way. And what if, what if just like I'm teaching my daughter, Sultana Bliss, what if our, the purpose of our life is 
simply to be happy? And what if one of the most important contributions that we could make to the world is to be happy? And that that would affect other people beneficially as well. It, when we, we live that example, when we lead through that example, instead of leading and contributing through sacrifice, maybe that is the most important thing that we can do in the world. I always tell my super babies, the most important work that you have to do in your life is to be happy. Yes. And I think looking at the state of the world, I'm like, wow, how, how different would it be if we were taught to prioritize our happiness? How different would we all feel if we were all taught to prioritize that and to just be and not focus so much on doing? Mm-hmm. It's so true. And it's really interesting because the question is, can you make a contribution to the world and focus on your happiness at the same time? That's the paradigm shift that has to happen. And yet Mm -hmm. the people who make the greatest contribution are the ones who are living so in their flow that there's no friction around what they're doing. Like everything just unfolds for them like magic. And so maybe that, key to contribution is living in a state of happiness and living in our flow instead of thinking that focusing on being happy will take away from our ability to make a contribution. And I think that that's really the the mindset and the message that needs to change. And it can start with us. One of the things that we do in the primester, which is the time leading up to conception. And it's also the act of priming our DNA for the very best epigenetic expression that optimizes our fertility, helps to ensure that we have a healthy pregnancy, and then also helps to ensure the fertility, mental health, physical health, and longevity of our super babies and our super grandbabies, because we know this gets passed down at least least two generations from the scientific data and we think more. One One of the things we do in the primester is we really get clear about what are the messages that got passed down to us and Surrounding fertility, pregnancy, motherhood, does motherhood have to be all sacrifice? But but also bigger messages and intentionally deciding, I'm going to pass down these because I think they've been beneficial and I'm not going to pass down these because I've spent my life healing from them and recovering from them and trying to change them and release their grip their terrible grip on my possibilities and my circumstances, right? And we want to do that. We want to be really intentional. I mean, one of the most important things for me in primestering was to realize that I came from a lineage of sacrifice and struggle and hardship. My dad had, he used to always say, I've never shared this before. He, my dad had this very thick accent. My, my family's from Egypt. And my dad always used to say, this damn shitty life, then like in his very thick accent. And that's that he said that constantly. Mm. And his life was 
shitty. It was so hard, you know, but I'm sure that he reinforced how hard, I hope it's okay to say a bad word, but he reinforced how, how, how hard his life was by looking at life in that way and expecting it to be that way. And there was no way I was going to pass down that message that, and I wasn't going to pass down that pattern of, of sacrifice and hardship and struggle. And I so intentionally decided like this stops here with me. Like I'm, I'm not taking it with me. I'm not passing it down. And when I look at our super babies and I'm like, wow, this is like magic. They are so at ease and so comfortable in the world. Like this life is beautiful, you know, as it should be. And so I think that that's one of the most important things that we can do in our trimester is get clear about what's been passed down to us, whether consciously or unconsciously, and make conscious decisions about whether it's continuing with us or this it, it's come to its end through us. Absolutely. I definitely want to talk more about the trimester and that time period and what that entails, but I like want to continue digging into what you just shared because I think it is huge, particularly for black women, brown women, the lineages that we come from, there are a lot of circumstances. There's a lot of trauma that for a lot of us, we still carry and we still have, like it's in us, it's in our DNA. And through the work that you do and through the work that you teach, you're literally teaching us how to not pass that down, how to have it stop with us. And I just really want to circle the significance of that. And it feels so empowering to know that we have the ability to do that. And that's not talked about. Like until I started following your work, I didn't know that we had the ability to do that. And I just want to really emphasize that power and how amazing that is. That power is everything. It's everything because why should we still be carrying what was experienced hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago? I mean, it's not that we we want to deny or forget anything that happened to our people, but we also want, ev- every parent wants their children and future generations to be better off than they were. That's why my parents came to America and endured all that they did. I mean, my mother, my mother died as a result of healthcare discrimination. Her death was completely preventable. And there she was, a 27-year-old woman, new to America, didn't speak English, no health insurance, and her life was not valued. And that's why she didn't live. And she came here for a better life for her children. And she lost her life by coming here. And my dad never recovered from that and never lived up to his full potential. He was a genius who spoke 12 languages and just, you know, lived in poverty until the end and raised five children in in poverty under really difficult circumstances. 7,000 miles away from any family support. I mean, it was just the hardest 
circumstances you could imagine. Well, there are harder circumstances. I shouldn't say that, but I guess in the developed world, some of the hardest circumstances you could imagine. And we, they, they did, they took those risks and I'm sure that they would do it all over again because they wanted a better life for their children. And from between their experience and now what my super babies get to experience, it's like a completely different universe. And we all want that. We all want, no matter who we are and no matter where we begin, we could have a lot and we still want our children and future generations to have more and and, and be able to experience more happiness because that's what it all comes down to, right? And part of doing that is deciding what of our experiences and the experiences that have been passed down to us intergenerationally do we want to pass on? And these experiences and our emotional responses to those experiences and our ruminations about the experiences, our reliving of the experiences become embedded in in our DNA, on top of our DNA. That's our epigenome. It leaves marks on top of our DNA and affects how our genes express themselves. And most of what we experience in terms of our physical health and our mental health and our fertility and our longevity is not genetic. It's epigenetic. And so we really want to be intentional about what we're choosing to pass down and what we're choosing to work on beforehand in the trimester so that we don't pass down. And we do have that power. Absolutely. And while maybe someone would be going through the trimester, while someone is thinking about these things, obviously we can't change our DNA. We can't change the DNA that we have. We can't necessarily change the DNA that our offspring will receive. We can um, change how things are expressed. What changes would we experience while going through this? I mean, even thinking about you as an example, how much has changed, you know, from when you were born to how your life is, the circumstances under which you were born under, and and your mother, unfortunately, passing away during childbirth to you having these really beautiful experiences around birth and fertility and motherhood and seeing that change in just one generation. What are things that we can do if we want to start making those changes and not carrying those things? How can we get started? I think the most important thing that we could know is that our genes are not our destiny. We are our destiny. And you're right. We have the genes we're always going to have. We can't change the genes that we were given, but we can change the way that our genes express themselves. So you can think of your your epigenome as a light switch and the light switch has a dimmer on it. So you have the ability to flip the switch on and off and you also have the ability to dial it up and dial it down. The same thing is true for our genes. So we can, through our epigenetic inputs, which I'll talk about in just a second so we know what some of those epigenetic levers are, Through our epigenetic inputs, we can flip the switch on and off. We can dial up our genetic strengths and privileges, and we can dial down our genetic weaknesses and vulnerabilities. So when we do that, 
we have, we are the ones who are determining what our future looks like and what our destiny is, our mental health destiny, our physical health destiny. Let me just give you one really concrete example of this that will blow people's minds. A a lot of us walk around thinking that we have a personality or a temperament that's more stable or more jittery and prone to anxiety. And the reality is that most people have a personality which is being dictated by their microbiome. So if you're somebody who thinks that you're just prone to anxiety, that you tend to be jittery, that you're always having to manage stress and anxiety inside of yourself, it could be that tweaks to your digestive practices and your nutritional practices could change the composition of your microbiome enough that you suddenly are not that jittery person. You suddenly are not prone to anxiety in that same way, but you thought that that's who you are and it is not who you are. It's that your microbiome is having such a profound impact on your epigenome and your genetic expression. So that's one of many examples. Oh, you know, I'm a nerd. You know, I love these types (laughs) of examples. I could hear you talk about that all day. (laughs) So important. And nobody says, I mean, you go to a doctor and you're like, I have this out of control anxiety. I can't function. And all of a sudden you're being prescribed something and maybe you do need to be prescribed something, but maybe there are root causes that can be addressed that would change everything for you. And so, like I said, the important thing to know is that your genes are not your destiny. You are your destiny. And today is when you are creating what that destiny of tomorrow and next year and of your super baby's future and your super baby's uh, grandbaby's future looks like. So I think that it's really easy to think about that being something that you address in the future when you're ready, getting ready to have children, when you're closer to wanting to become a mom. And the reality is that today is when you're laying that foundation. So it's never too early to start primestering. In fact, if you're female, if you're biologically female, you've been carrying your future super babies in your ovaries since you were a 20-week-old fetus in your mother's womb, meaning that your future super babies were in your mother's womb with you. And your they're not really eggs yet. They're follicles that will mature into eggs. But let's just say your, your eggs, your future super babies, are inside of you. And it's as if they're eavesdropping on every experience you have. Because every experience you have has a biochemical underpinning. Whether you are constantly anxious, you're constantly feeling joy, you you feel love, you feel stress, you you live in a state of constant emergency, you you live in a state of, of bliss, what I call my belly dancing life. That's like, that's my version of bliss. Like belly dancing life is what I, I'm going for every day. It, they, your, your future super babies are experiencing all of that with you. 
And their epigenome is already being conditioned and programmed in the primester and also in utero once you are pregnant. And so you're already mothering your future super babies long before they're born, long before you're pregnant with them, long before you conceive. And so we want to start really paying attention to that. If that's something that we know we want for ourselves, we want to have children and we want to have amazing, healthy children. That's what having our super babies is. It means we get to have the healthiest, happiest, brightest, most well-adjusted babies that we can possibly have given our genome and our epigenome and that of the other person providing DNA for them. So we, if we want to have them, then we want to start paying attention to that long before we ever conceive them. Oh my gosh. I now just have millions of more, <laughs> millions more questions because these are these are like the things that I love learning about. And I also really love the examples that you gave just now around even if we have a certain temperament or even if we feel like we're in a certain state that that doesn't have to be our identity. And hearing that is so comforting. Even the example that you gave with the microbiome and the connection to anxiety, that we don't have to wear the identity of what's happened to us. Um, actually reminds me a lot of my grandmother. She had every like health issue under the sun, high blood pressure and lupus and arthritis and all of these things. And she took it all very seriously and took good care of herself and had a good medical team. But I always remember her saying, that she never claimed any of it. She was she would, you know, talk about, you know, her lupus diagnosis and she'd say, you know, okay, well that's what they tell me, but she would never introduce herself or say, you know, I have this or I have that. She never wanted to like claim it, although she took care of it, she never took it on as her identity. And that's something that's always really stuck with me and I think really kept her as long as it did. Um, and I love kind of the, the version that you shared of that as well, that we do experience these things, but they don't have to be our identity. I love that so much. And your grandmother lived a long time, right? She lived into her 80s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, till her mid eighties. Yeah, mm-hmm. she did. And so that's even longer than the average woman. And mm-hmm. your grandmother, I'm assuming, was a woman of color. Mm-hmm. She was born at a time when the average lifespan wasn't that long. So she actually had, relatively speaking, a very long lifespan. And I'm sure that that mindset and that attitude and that approach had something to do with it. And it makes me think of. One of, one of our mamas who's in her 40s and she's going to be giving birth to her super baby girl soon. She got pregnant on the second try wow. naturally. And she talks about how she does not ever talk about her age. She'll say that she's in her 40s, but she won't say specifically how old she is. And the reason why she does that is because she believes that what we talk about, we become identified with. And what we become identified with determines what's possible for us. And so she didn't want to be limited in her fertility or anything else by her age. 
And she, she went for it. She didn't go and medicalize her fertility just because she was in her forties. She didn't go have the, her anti-malarian hormone level tested, which is the one test they'll do in a regular doctor's office to give you a sense of where your fertility is. They use it as a measure of ovarian reserve, which means loosely speaking, how many eggs you have left. And because we're, we're, as of right now, our understanding is that we're born with all the eggs that we're ever going to have and that we don't produce new eggs throughout our lifetime. Now, we do know that there are cells that look like they can be stimulated to maybe produce eggs in the future, but that might be something that we learn later on. And it to say that we had all the eggs we were ever going to have is like saying the world was flat or that there was no plasticity in the brain, right? Because science is always evolving. But as of right now, this is the state of our knowledge. And so she made the decision that she was not going to identify with this and that she was not going to allow her her care team to identify her this way either. So that she said, like, if you're going to be my midwife, you're not allowed to say because you're this age that you're, you know, you're going to, you're more likely to have this problem or whatever it is. And I think that that's really important. And it's so much like what your, your grandmother did. It's not that this, this mama doesn't take into account that she she is in her 40s, but it doesn't have to dictate what her life experience is and what's possible for her. Yes. Oh, I love that 100%. I love it too. Thank you. I would love to talk a little bit more about the primester because I know that that is what you've created and, and what you teach. And we've touched on it a little bit, but I would love to get into it a little bit more around what the primester entails. Um, you mentioned earlier just around um, it never being too early to think about it, regardless of, of when you want to conceive. So I would love to also talk a little bit more about kind of timing of the primester, what that entails, and what that looks like for people who think they may be interested in having their own biological children, even if they're not there yet. Um, or if someone is like, you know what, I am ready and I want to start trying uh, what that could look like for them as well. Absolutely. So let's, let me start with timing. Cause I think that's really important. So we at the fertility and pregnancy Institute, I would say about 80% of our clients are people who are, are struggling to get and or stay pregnant. So they're really experiencing fertility challenges or pregnancy complications. The other 20% are people who just want to optimize their epigenetics before they get pregnant so that getting pregnant is easy, so that they have a healthy pregnancy, and and most importantly, for, for what they're coming for, so that they have their super babies and their super grandbabies. So if you're somebody who knows that you want to have children right now, maybe you've been trying for months or years, then you want a trimester for 120 days and then go into getting pregnant. If you're somebody who knows I want to be a mom one day, I want to be a parent one day, but I'm not ready to do it today, then you can trimester for a year, even two years, even longer, and you would just go in like 70, 30 on your primester. You might not be a hundred percent in on your primester and then you will dial it up 
as you get closer. But there is a dose-response relationship of primestering to pregnancy outcomes. So the longer you primester, the better. It's never too early to start primestering. And one piece of that that we really should talk about is birth control. Is that something that we can get into a little bit? Definitely. Birth control? Okay, awesome. So I want to say first that I think that hormonal birth control is really important. I'm not hating on hormonal birth control. My family comes from Egypt and I understand what it's like when you don't have the ability to control when reproduction happens. And that is as catastrophic as not being able to have children when you want to have children. And yet It is really important to say that hormonal birth control has a number of side effects, which can affect mental health, physical health, fertility, and so many other things in the long term. And one universal side effect of hormonal birth control that we don't talk about is that it masks what the body would be doing naturally. And if you don't know what your body is doing naturally, then you actually don't know if your fertility is healthy. You don't know if your cycle is healthy and you don't know what to expect when the time comes to get pregnant. And so if you are somebody who is primestering, let's say you're, you're primestering light, like 70, 30, you're 70% of the way in on your primester because you're not planning to get pregnant for two years or five years. Then if you can be mindful and deliberate in preventing pregnancy during the time that you don't want to, it is probably a smart thing to do to go off of hormonal birth control so that you can see what your body does on its own and so that if there's a if the if your body needs a period of time to level out that it can so one thing that happens is people will come to me and say dr c my whole life i was like clockwork i had a 28 day cycle and now that i want to have a baby it's all wacky and i'll say to them your whole life for the 28-day cycle, were you on the pill or was that your natural cycle? Because if it was because you were on the pill, then it was giving you that cycle. And so the, those things are not, and it's not comparing apples to apples, right? So that's really important to know. And there are some people feel like they're, the the pill or hormonal birth control maybe uh, is is responsible for the fertility challenges that they're having later on. There are certain pathways that that through which the pill can affect fertility, for example, the microbiome through insulin resistance. Uh, those are those are all things that the microbiome can become disrupted through hormonal birth control. People can be more prone to insulin resistance when they're on or if they've been on hormonal birth control. And those pathways can lead to difficulties getting and or staying pregnant. But it could also be that you were somebody who had an erratic cycle 
earlier in your life, which may have been indicative that there was an underlying problem. And then a doctor gave you hormonal birth control to regulate your cycle. So it was just that the, the, the hormonal birth control was masking what your cycle would have been doing naturally. So these are all really important things to be aware of. And if you can intentionally prevent getting pregnant, to go off of hormonal birth control, use other methods of birth control so that you can see what your body does on its own and start to learn about your body, which we have a process of cycle science that we use, which is collecting biomarker, your own biomarkers to see what your body is doing. And it's so empowering to learn about your body in that way. It's just incredible, incredible. It really is. I've we've done several episodes about just understanding your menstrual cycle for those who are interested here on the podcast. And a lot of it has been kind of inspired by my own journey because I got off of hormonal birth control about five years ago. And even when I did, it wasn't because I knew any of this. It was truly because my prescription ran out <laughs> around the same time that I'd like broken up with a an ex-boyfriend. And I was like, well, I guess. <laughs> Yes, I don't need it. I don't know. So I just kind of stopped and then started learning all these things about my body. But over the past five years, all that I've learned about my body returning back to its natural cycle has been so interesting and just such good information. And, you know, I also am, am not like anti birth control by any means. I'm just pro people understanding what's happening and making the most informed choice for themselves. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I agree 100%. 100%. So yes, it's something that, that we want to talk about. And if, if this is something that matters to you, it's something to pay attention to instead of just assuming that because everybody else does something, everybody goes on the pill, that it's that that's the right thing for you too. It's a lot like the societal messages that we were talking about earlier where you have to struggle and sacrifice to make a contribution. Well, maybe maybe that societal message isn't true. And maybe the societal message that the only way that you can prevent pregnancy when you don't mean to get pregnant is to be on the pill. So I think that we just want to be critical consumers of information and think for ourselves. And the reality is that we can look around us and, and think that just because everybody else is doing this, it's fine. Like it's normal. You know what everybody does? Everybody consumes sugar. Well, sugar is a drug just because it's, it's the most addictive drug on the planet. It, we are, we have brain studies that show that it's more addictive than cocaine and heroin, just because everybody eats sugar doesn't mean that it's okay to eat sugar. And the way, just because most people just have sex and get pregnant doesn't mean that that's the way that we want to create our super babies. So we get to choose for ourselves. We get to think for ourselves and we get to choose something different, even if it flies in the face of what everybody else is doing if we decide that it's right for us. Definitely. What I love so much about your work and just what you put into the world is conversations around fertility that are 
positive in nature for people no matter where they're at because I've noticed that a lot in my life when I was younger, it was very much like don't get pregnant, fear-mongering that way. And then you reach a certain age, and if you haven't had children yet, then it's a lot of fear-mongering of, well, you're getting too old and you need to go, like, hurry up. And I just feel like it's not it's not fair and it's not productive having conversations about fertility and reproduction be about fear no matter where people are in the lifespan. It's like you're fear so you don't, fear so you do. That can't be – good for us, right? Like, are there connections between our mental state if we view this as something to be afraid of and our fertility outcomes? Like, can we talk about that a little bit more? Absolutely. So I, you said so many things that I feel are so important, Les, that I just want to thank you for. And it's true. I mean, the messages around our fertility and our sexuality as females and especially as women of color are so negative and so fear-based and so full of shame that it's a wonder any of our bodies work the way that they were intended to. And it's true that there are these really powerful and intricate feedback loops between our psychology and our fertility. So we at the Fertility and Pregnancy Institute and in the Primester Protocol look at fertility and pregnancy as a complex network or a system, kind of like a cell phone network or like the neural network in the brain, if you can picture images like that. And at the we we simplify this with what we call the fertility pyramid because it's very it, it has many parts. And at the base of the pyramid is the psychosexual level and that has to do with our psychology, our sensuality, our sexuality. And it is not by chance that the psychosexual level is the base of the pyramid because it is the most important part of the pyramid. Everybody comes to FPI and to the protocol saying, give me the, give me the diet, give me the supplements. And I'm like, that is one one thousandth of what we are doing here. And that is so minute compared to what we are going to be doing here and what is going to move the needle the most for you, if especially if you're having fertility challenges, but even if you've just come because you want to change your epigenome for the sake of your super baby's liberation and freedom and health. And so this is so important. The, the same regions of the brain that are principally responsible for ensuring our safety and our survival are also involved in reproduction. And the brain is so beautiful and intelligent that it is always, always, always going to prioritize our safety and survival above and beyond everything else. And that includes above and beyond reproduction. So when the brain perceives that there's a shortage of resources or that you are living in a state of emergency and that it's not safe, it will not, it will want to preserve those resources and it will not allow resources to be funneled to reproduction because reproduction is an incredibly costly endeavor. It is incredibly costly in terms of the resources that it takes to 
conceive, to stay pregnant, to grow a baby, to birth a baby, to breastfeed a baby, to raise a, a human. And so the brain, in all of its intelligence, if you are living in a state of emergency, stress, or trauma, will put reproduction on the back burner. It will suppress reproduction, meaning that it will be much harder to get pregnant and or stay pregnant. And so it is really important that we send the right signals through this biochemical cascade that happens every time we think a thought, we have an experience. We want to send the right signals to the brain and to our future super babies who are already in our ovaries that say, newsflash, everything is safe here. You are safe. I am safe. We have plenty of resources to keep me alive and well, and to grow you. And we we call this process leaving the porch light on for your super baby and ensuring that it's as bright as humanly possible. So this is like the difference between being in a car late at night where there are no lights on the streets and you're looking for a house in a neighborhood that you've never been to before. And you've got all this traffic behind you and all the bright lights from the traffic and the, 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 the sidewalk and the houses are so dark and you're trying to slow down to see where the house is and you can't see anything versus you're, you're in, you're on the street, you're in this new neighborhood, you're looking for this new house, but it has the the porch light on, the door open, and you know exactly which one it is and you can just pull right into it, right? That's like the same idea, leaving the porch light on for your super baby and ensuring that it's as, as bright as possible. And it sounds really sweet and it sounds very spiritual. In some ways it is, but it's also an epigenetic process. And that's what's so important through this biochemical cascade. And so we want to be sending the right signals. And one of the most important ways that we can do that is through the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal cortical axis, which is the body stress response system. And that HPA axis also affects the function of the thyroid. It affects the function of the ovaries and it affects stress level, stress hormone levels and sex hormone levels. So there's an inverse relationship between those two. As stress hormones go up, sex hormones go down. And so that is a very, very direct pathway through which this feedback loop is impacting your fertility. So you are 100% right that there are these relationships. And one of the things, I mean, you, you really tapped into this intuitively, one of the things that we do in the primester is do this incredible excavation of all of our fears surrounding fertility, pregnancy, motherhood, our sexuality, because we all carry around so much shame and so much fear. Who doesn't have a sexual shame in their history somewhere? Who doesn't have a shame surrounding their body somewhere, surrounding their cycle somewhere. I mean, it's, you know, these things that should be like the most natural, wonderful thing. 
in the world, we are all carrying this around. And then you take the the media messages, especially about women of color and really hypersexualizing. It's the 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 images in the media of women of color are either hypersexual or asexual. And those those are so incredibly harmful. And they do have an impact. I'm thinking of a beautiful super mama who, who just recently gave birth pregnant for the very first time in her life in her forties. She had been married for over a decade and they never managed to get pregnant. And she had so much fear, so much fear. And she worked through that fear and, and she, I, she really believed, and I really believed that the working through the fear, she, it would have been really easy for her to draw the conclusion that she was infertile. She was sterile. That many years of being in a marriage and not getting pregnant, but it was the, it was at the psychosexual level and the excavation of the fears that made the magic happen. And I would say that 99% of the time, that is where the magic happens. And that's why it is the base of the pyramid. It is so incredibly powerful. And we have this foundational mantra that we use in the trimester, which is as many moments of every day as humanly possible, step out of stress, step out of emergency, step out of trauma, and step into your peace and your pleasure and your self-love. And I know that for a lot of us, we hear the word pleasure and we're like, oh, that's cute. Like, I don't have time for pleasure. Like I'm surviving here. I'm getting tenure. I'm surviving financially. I'm whatever it may be. And the reality is that we, we need to, and we get to treat pleasure as if our life and our fertility depend on it because they do, they do. And it takes us right back to that conversation about time and life and how precious they are and how the most important way that we could spend our life is, is in a state of pleasure and peace. Oh my goodness. I just feel like that was such a beautiful, like full circle journey just now. And hearing scientifically the connection between our mind and how our bodies function is so powerful. Again, it it just shows us how much power we truly have to impact our own outcomes. And it also got me thinking about earlier in the conversation when we were talking about what we pass down to future generations and not passing down that stress and that generational trauma. It really sounds like a lot of this work is also helping to uh, positively impact the fertility of future generations if we can refrain from passing down these traumas and this stress and this shame, um, really helping to bear fruitful generations for the future, which is really beautiful. That came to me like while you were you were speaking and describing all of this. It's powerful. That, that is so beautiful, Les. And you know, it's so true. And a mama once asked me because she struggled so much with her own egg quality when she finally got pregnant, she was like, okay, what can I do to make sure that my daughter has good egg quality? And I was like, what you've done to improve yours 
you keep doing throughout pregnancy, you, you, you give to her as a way of life. Like primester life is for everybody. My, my super babies live primester life. And so do I always, my husband, my beautiful husband is going to be 51 and he looks like he's in his thirties. And I remember when he was turning 50, he looked at me and he's like, I, I owe this to you that you've, you've taught me this way of life. And like, look what it's given me, not just these amazing super babies, but also I feel like I did when I was 30, which is an amazing gift to give someone. So it's the same thing. That's how, that's how we give our super babies and super grandbabies a foundation of of fertility and that and and fruitfulness as as you were saying and actually we know that we start programming the fertility that our super babies will have in utero and in the primester so it's it's not something to to take lightly I, and i don't and i don't say that to mean that we need to take it seriously because i don't think that that helps anyone to walk around taking things too seriously, but we can take it thoughtfully and sacredly as one of our mamas, Christine Hassler says, because we do have so much power to shape these experiences. Absolutely. Oh, I love hearing about the things that we have the power to influence and impact because we know societally that there are a lot of things that don't work in our favor, but if we do all we can to do what works in our favor, it can go a really long way. It does. It does go a really long way. So true. Yeah. So if we have listeners who are interested in primestering, I know I'm like, I'm, I need to start primestering actually. We can't wait to have you in the primester, mama. Yeah. Yeah. It's a perfect time. How can they learn more? How can they get started? Absolutely. So come to visit us at fertilitypregnancy.org. We have an incredible resource there that anyone can download for free, which is the fertility checklist. And it will give you 10 simple easy action steps that you can start putting to work for your fertility and your future super babies right now, today, as soon as you download it. And if you know that you want to begin primestering with us, and if, if you've been having difficulty getting pregnant, or you know that you're going to be looking to get pregnant a couple of months or, or years from now, you can go to fertilitypregnancy.org forward slash consult, and you can book a consultation. It's free, and the team will walk you through your next steps, what you need to do, what's your best course of action. Amazing. We will have all of that linked in the show notes to make it super easy for folks to find if they're interested. Cleopatra, thank you so much. This was, I know this is going to be one of those episodes that I go back and listen to, to like take notes on everything you were sharing because it was jam packed with so much incredible information. So thank you so much for sharing with us. I'm so glad. Thank you for being an amazing listener. You have such an incredible gift for listening and for interviewing. I I do a lot of interviews and today I talked about a lot of things I've never talked about before. And that's because of your gift of holding space and asking the right questions and underscoring 
the really soulful things that that come forward and come forth and it makes all of us better and i know that your listeners love you so much for that and i love you so much for that thank you for that gift that you share with the world oh well thank you so much i receive and appreciate that more than you know and and thank you for showing up and being so vulnerable and open and and honest and sharing your story with us even the parts that i'm sure are are difficult to to share and relive so i really appreciate you my pleasure my sister so i don't know about you but after that conversation my wheels are turning I learned so much and I feel really empowered and inspired when considering my own family planning aspirations. We're going to have all of Dr. Cleopatra's information linked below so that you can learn more about her work at the Fertility and Pregnancy Institute and the Primester Protocol. Head to the show notes for more information about today's episode, including special offers from our sponsors, information about the Black Mamas Matter Alliance, and how you can support Black Maternal Health Week. And don't forget to head to balanceblackgirl.com for extended show notes and full transcripts of today's episode. Huge thanks to our sponsors who really make the production of these episodes possible, and of course, to you for joining us. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we're talking to doula, registered dietitian, and soon-to-be registered nurse Miriam Webb about creating a supportive birthing experience and ways we can support the mothers in our villages. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss it. See you next week.